So I always say it's the scars of people that actually perpetuate my purpose and perpetuate my mission. And every time that I, I face a struggle or I, you know, face a technical difficulty, I turn back and I'm like, Lord, help me to remember the faces. Help me to see the stories of people who have confided in me. Hi, everyone, and welcome to I'll Go First. Dr. Colleen Batchelder joins us on this episode. She's a really fascinating theologian, CEO of Loud, and a diversity and inclusion strategist and consultant. Her work is centered around social justice, LGBTQ, and women's rights in the conservative church, right? So controversial. You're going to really, really love it, though. It's kind of amazing. She and I talk about how to cultivate your own faith practices, keeping our identity intact in the face of adversity, social justice in the American church, and standing up for each other. Let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to I'll Go First. We are recording from home. This is actually our third episode recording from home, and it has been a tiny bit of a technical challenge for me. We got so spoiled in the studio, so because of everything that's happening with the health pandemic right now, we're recording from home, and Dr. Colleen has been so patient. She has a Doctor of Ministry and Leadership and Global Perspective from Portland Seminary. She's the founder and CEO of the Loud Summit, and she has done a very cool dissertation. She actually just completed her doctorate. Congratulations. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. It is great to be on the show. And I, I give you credit. There's not many people that can pronounce my last name. So you tried. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. So it's Dr. Colleen Batchelder. And so just to give you a little glimpse. So I spent three years, so you can actually see the gray hair coming through, but I spent three years doing all this research and getting everything together to create my thesis called Exvangelicalism, Why Millennials and Generation Z are Leaving White Conservative Evangelicalism. And wow. it was mind boggling, the things that I actually came up with. Wow. I, that's a lot of words. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted you to come on the show because I think your story is so relevant. So Colleen and I had a chance to talk. We, well, we've actually known each other for about a year. Colleen yeah. invited me to come speak at the Loud Summit, which was super special. It was the first time I had spoken since I started treatment for my brain disease a few years ago earlier and Colleen was so lovely to have me and she is so energetic and she's so happy and her perspective on faith and healing is really unique and I think even coming from a faith background you're just so relatable all the work that you're doing and I was really surprised at how you engage with young people and engage with these really tough subjects so on that can you break down what is, what does each word mean in that <laughs> dissertation? Sure. Thanks so much. And it was great having you. You did a wonderful job speaking at the event. So a little bit about it. So exvangelicalism. We've all seen the news, read the articles about how supposedly those in their 20s and 30s are leaving the church in droves. And that's what we've been taught. That's what we've been fed. However, I believe that that is the biggest lie that we've come to believe. They are not leaving the church. They're not leaving Christianity. They are leaving what, in my opinion, is a very bastardized form of Christianity that never was. But it's turned into this American evangelicalism that is based in sexism, homophobia, racism, and nationalism. 
And the problem is we replaced Christianity and created it to be pillars that are very hurtful and abusive. And we've called it American church. Wow. That's not a very widely accepted perspective, is it? <laughs> no, not really. And, and I mentioned a couple people verbatim. So I talk about Falwell. I talk about the systemic racism that happened within the church. I talk about Jimmy Carter and how he was the first one to actually use the term evangelicalism, but all the coalitions got together and they decided to actually spearhead a campaign against him and especially against the Democratic Party to create Christianity into a very Republican, very reformed, very conformist mentality that it is today. You have grown up in a very conservative evangelical home, and then you decided to do a doctorate, but your doctorate does not really fall in line with the conservative upbringing. No. Your doctor is kind of the opposite. <laughs> it's really yeah. challenging the status quo. How on earth did you get to the point where you wanted to do doctorate in something that was so affronting, I would say? Because yeah. you've talked a little bit about receiving hate mail, a lot of criticism. You get attacked on social media a lot. And I am just surprised that you keep putting yourself out there. It's been a lot and it's been very frustrating. But I think it's almost like, you know, you hear that old adage, the truth will set you free. Well, the truth will also put you in the front lines. And the one thing that I found was when I was doing my research, I decided there is so much truth in this that I am not going to believe the lie. I'm not going to perpetuate the lie. And I'm not going to allow this lie to exist. It's really taken over my personal faith, which is Christianity. What is the lie? And so what I would say, the lie is this idea of abuse and hatred and fear that comes from so many different evangelical cultures. You look at even what's happening with Samaritan's Purse right now and how there was such an uproar of Samaritan's Purse coming into New York City because they were very Islamophobic and there was a lot of homophobia within that foundation. And so when people have that perspective and they have that expectation of Christianity, it, Christ gets, gets muddled in the mix and it really becomes overshadowed. And so my purpose was I grew up in a conservative home I was very familiar with Joshua Harris. I kissed dating goodbye. Oh my gosh, Joshua uh, you know, Harris. Was... How could you forget Joshua Harris? For yes. those listening, Joshua Harris was, how old was he when he wrote this book? He wrote a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. I think 19, 19, 21-ish. Oh yeah. my goodness. I think you probably can give the premise of the book a little mm. bit better, but I know it definitely ruined my love life and my perspective yeah. on relationships and definitely my perspective on sex for sure. Yeah. And yeah, I feel like the surprise at the end of that story is really good. But Colleen, you are yeah. the expert and I want it's, you to say it. Yeah. Well, what, one of the biggest problems that happened was it made women either a decoration or a support pillar. And it deemed them as a structure that was only for the benefit or only for the pulling down of men. So in a sense, it created this unequal situation where women were less than men. It was this hierarchy statute. And so men and stuff like that could be tempted. Women were given all the power to actually, you know, take the purity away from men. And it made them a sexual object instead of actually a human being. And it deemed them as dismissible. And the problem that I found was women really lost their voice. They lost their place. They lost their identity. And how that affected me was, I mean, I, as an ENTJ, I was always very, That's very strong Briggs, in my conviction. Yes. <laughs> and very leadership oriented. And so with that culture, 
telling me that, well, I don't fit into that specific box. I'm not supportive. I don't stand as a quote unquote help meet. I don't have that situation where I'm that pillar to support a man's career or his vocational choice. I'm my own person. I was considered an affront in the church because of how God had personally made me. And so there was always that, that traction and that friction between Christian culture and my own personality that I had been given in, in God and how I perceived that I was made in the image of God. And so having that leadership from a very early age, but also going through the abuse of going into Bible college, you know, being named a heretic for the things that I was believing because I was looking beyond the surface and not just accepting, but researching. And one thing that I will say is intellectual discourse and skepticism within the church and especially within the evangelical faith has been considered a bastardized version and a no-no that no one ever ventures into. You're not allowed to question. You're not allowed to question. It's considered a threat to the gospel. And my opinion is it's considered a threat because the leaders actually see you as a nonconformist. I found my biological Indian family and Mm -hmm. I was, I do not know all the cultural nuances of being a female in a conservative Indian family. And when I met the family in India, they are Sikh. And there's a lot of things that are unsaid that I didn't know about coming from America and having just found the family, I had a lot of questions and asking those questions were not really, they were not received very well. (laughs) Let's just say. (laughs) So what would you say to people who are really trying to to challenge the status quo, but are kind of stuck in these, you know, either patriarchal or just familiar or cultural boxes that they can't really break out of. I mean, when I hear you talk as well, you have just really carved a path in an area that is not, people are not receptive, the very conservative Christian church. Yeah, I would say to people, there's a balance of understanding cultural context and giving credence to it, you know, allowing people mm, to be who they are. Yeah. And to me, it's almost like you look at the Muslim culture, for instance, and you look at you look at the covering. If a woman can feel liberated within that position, then God bless her. Like, let her be herself truly. I'm not going to cast judgment, but I think also too, there's the balance of respecting cultural normatives and traditions and patriarchal influences. But I think when you are a woman trying to exercise your leadership, trying to exercise your identity, or even stepping into that journey, and I think also, too, your your personality really plays into that. How much of a fierce lion you are or how much of a lamb you are (laughs) on that journey is based upon who you are, how you've been made personally. But I will say my exploration of my journey has come at a price. And it has come with hate mail. It has come with me being on the front lines. It has come with me being in a very isolated, lonely position. But I can tell those that are listening that when you do step out, one, you give other permissions to do the same. Mm, And there is that beautiful freedom of seeing the domino effect of you breaking that glass ceiling, maybe getting a few shards of glass in your skin, healing, seeing those scars, but also looking behind you and looking next to you and seeing other women and other men and other people of, of, of gender fluidity rise up and really claim their identity. You just mentioned something about, you know, being okay about 
wow, I just, I was envisioning everything you were saying. I was getting lost in all the, like, <laughs> the, the description. And I was like, I, I went to India and I just zoned out there for a second <laughs> trying to replay how I could have managed that yeah. situation a little bit. You talk a lot about identity and finding your identity mm -hmm. after this process. So just to give some context, Colleen, can you just walk us through, you were a kid in this conservative home, New Jersey? Yeah. Yeah. New, New Jersey. Jersey. And so. so we're filming this over Zoom right now. And Colleen is in New Jersey yep. with a, a massive pile of books behind her. And I really can appreciate <laughs> that because I have my massive <laughs> pile of books behind we, we're me. We're both the readers. <laughs> yeah, the readers. And then you go to Bible college. I mean, yeah. you don't strike me as the person that would go to Bible college. If I'm just I, be I wasn't. It was it was really funny. At, at about like three years old, I was always very extroverted. And so, you know, growing up in, in a Baptist household. You were Baptist. Yes. So I was Baptist up until I was seven. <laughs> and I always would say to people, even growing up in a Baptist household, I'm gonna be a pastor. I had never seen a woman pastor the first time that I had laid eyes on a female pastor. I had to actually go out of the country to England. Wow. I was 23 years old. And I remember this vicar just stepping up to the pulpit and just having this freedom. She wasn't leading women's ministry. She wasn't having a tea party. She was truly just residing fully in who she was. And it was the most empowering and liberating experience that I'd had for the first time. And realizing that my leadership didn't have to be boxed. But that experience didn't save me from, from the turmoil and the trial and struggles. Because being in New Jersey, the one thing I would say is it's a very blue state with a very red church. And the pendulum swung very much to the right. And so women were allowed in positions of leadership, just as long as you hung out with children or kids that were under the age of 12. And that was, that was not how I was wired. I was a theologian. I was a scholar. Give me a room full of books, a coffee, and let me get into a really good theological discussion. And there were rooms that I was excluded from, not only because of my gender, but because of my marital status. As a single woman, especially within the church, you're considered one, not to have the experience that you need, because in my opinion, you haven't been quote unquote inseminated. Um, <laughs> And, and I put that out there. And the problem is we put so much credence on being inseminated compared to being in seminary. What does inseminary mean to you? Seminary was liberating. Seminary was the first time that I got to connect with my faith and not necessarily leave it. Mm. Because I would say I was ready to pack the bags and not even search through spirituality, but just kind of call it a day. I still had a belief in God. I, I call myself almost like a a hopeful agnostic that had nothing to do with the church in my early 20s because I just, I wanted the freedom of leadership of not having to be boxed in and, and play a role and play a title. And seminary to me was so invigorating because it, it wasn't a place where you had to learn the rules or learn the conformity or follow the denominational normatives. It was a place where you could doubt and be skeptical and ask. And if you could prove it through your own research, you were allowed and invited to have your own specific opinion. And to me, it was the first time that I saw my faith as something that had freedom to it, that didn't have chains around it to enslave me, but it actually had a liberating experience to, to, to walk me out and to give me that purpose. I hear you talk about a liberating experience, and I think of people who I've met, and I think even in my own story, who will say faith is the opposite. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say to me, I, I came very close during this time. I haven't really stepped into a church probably even before the coronavirus, you know, took place. I'd say in about a good year and a half. And again, it's, it's coming to that point of, you know, you feel like you can trust the congregation. You feel like, you know, you've read through their theological structure. You've met with the pastors, connected with them. And I think there's a part of you, especially if you've grown up in the faith, that always wants to have that part of community again. And it's almost like, it's almost like an abusive situation where you keep going back to that same abuse and abuse and abuse, and you trick yourself into believing that, oh, wait a minute, this is a healthy relationship, and it's really not. And the one thing that I found was, yes, I was getting more involved in the church structure, but I was losing more of my identity and who I was. And I had to come to a place of stepping away. And the, the way that my faith has grown has honestly been through podcasts, through Zoom meetings, through getting online, talking to different people that I can connect with. And to not, the problem that I, that I had really kind of stepped into, and I think why I had found myself in that abusive situation, was I had believed that the church that I was attending was my mission field. It was my purpose to change. And I think as a type A personality and as a leader, I saw it as a challenge to be wrought. But I realized that, wait a minute, the church should be a safe space. You know, it should be feeding. It should be, in a sense, immersive for me so that I'm not running dry, but I should actually be filled. And if anything, I just felt like I was being battered and exhausted every single time. What did that look like? How did you know something was not right? I think to me, when I look back, and I don't want to single out a specific church, I will say church in a universal term. When I look back at my experience with all churches and denominations, I was handed a script. And I think that's the biggest thing where it's almost like as a woman, especially, there is a certain expectation on you compared to men and especially white men within the church. There's more grace extended to them and there's more blame and shame extended to you. And because of that, I got to the point where I was handed a sheet and saying, okay, well, you're allowed to say this. But you can't talk about your doctorate. You can't talk about being wow. educated because you might, quote unquote, offend. No way. And I would say that was the biggest struggle that I found where I, I had gotten so much into protecting others that I had lost myself. And I came to the point of, wait a minute, there are churches that embrace a learned person. There are places that actually embrace intellectual doubt and skepticism alongside with faith. And I needed to find a family and I needed to find a community of faith that I could truly belong to. Not that I was always constantly being in friction and fighting against. We had an audience member write in to ask you about your thoughts on spiritual abuse and trauma in the church. I've had my own extensive trauma in the church. And Mm -hmm. we have had a few people come on the show who have had child sexual abuse or assault. And some of those have happened within the church. I know we have a guest coming up in a few weeks, also a male guest who had this happen to him. Yeah. So from your perspective, you have such a refreshing perspective on it. What do you do when that happens? Yeah, I, I would say the first thing to do is acknowledge it within yourself. And that's been really helpful to me because I think as women and I think as Christians, I think growing up in a church, you're constantly told to brush things off to extend grace, that there is no such thing as justice. And I think one of the biggest failings that the church has perpetuated 
is we've removed social justice from the church. Well, why yeah. have we removed it? Because it lets people get away with murder. And if we don't have social justice, then it creates the perfect climate for the church to be apathetic, arrogant, ignorant, and abusive. And we've created this perfect climate of not holding leaders responsible and just using Jesus as our stamp of approval and our excuse for their bad behavior and for their treatment of people. The one thing that I found that was really interesting and, and even kind of going into the LGBTQ, especially with the abuse there. Now, as a cisgender, you know, straight woman, I can only vaguely understand the abuse that goes on with that community. And my heart goes out and I stand as a bold, affirming person and leader and pastor of that community. But for instance, when you look at Franklin Graham and during my research and kind of looking into the dissertation, now Franklin Graham will get on there and he'll say, well, I believe in traditional marriage. Well, that's not necessarily true because if you look deeper into the situation, if you look at different news articles, it's not a quote unquote support of traditional marriage. It's not even a, an idea of conservatism. It's the idea of allowing and inviting a gay genocide to wow. occur. There are news programs that actually have him agreeing with Putin's treatment of homosexuals during the time where police would actually drag wow. them and bring them to in their life. The church needs to repent and lament the systemic issues of racism, sexism, homophobia that have been part of the foundation for years. And I think the problem is you can't just address a leader for an abusive behavior without addressing the foundation of the church for creating an abusive atmosphere. And I would say for me, one thing that I would do is I support people who have been through that trauma. I can identify yeah. with that. As a woman who's always been told to mind their place, that I'm, I've got letters from pastors that say, oh, you're such a lady in person, but you're such a online. There is a price to pay for honestly, truly being a Christian. In my point of view, in my research, in my theological perspective, that there's not a price to pay for being an American evangelical. And in my opinion, American evangelicalism is nothing more than a cult that's more closely related to the KKK than anything else. I could see why you get some hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a little bit. Wow. But it's a lot. And I think that needs to be said because the problem that I find is it's easy for churches and it's easy for pastors to brush millennials, especially aside in Generation Z, who are calling church leaders on the carpet and saying that we're leaving the faith. We're not leaving the faith. We're leaving American abuse of the faith. We're trying to actually resurrect and recontextualize our faith to actually be more pure than it has been since the 1980s, the 1920s, the 1940s. Something you mentioned in a different interview was about the idea of a penal system when it comes to faith. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more yeah. about that? I, I thought that was so interesting. Sure. Yeah. So if you look at the American church as a whole, so Dwight L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody was one of the biggest people to really start evangelicalism or evangelism. But he also was one of the first ones to actually start missionary groups. And so missionary groups were very much on conversion. The weirdest thing is actually until Moody, social justice was highly connected to the gospel. And so the gospel was not seen as hurtful. Even if you look back, women and men actually had very similar leadership roles. And it was very equal, very egalitarian until Moody started to make it very conversion oriented. Another thing that really changed from the church was there's this thing called Christus Victor. So Christus Victor is the belief that it still believes that Christ died, 
resurrected and, is, and ascended, but it was to actually create, it, it was to overcome darkness and overcome evil. It didn't really have anything to do with sin per se. Now, when you look at the majority of American churches, especially like non-denominational or evangelicalism, not so much mainline, is there's this perpetuation of penal substitution. Well, penal substitution believes that God is a wrathful God and Jesus had to step in to actually appease God's wrath right, towards yeah. us because we deserved penalty and yes. death. That doesn't make any sense to me because it also no, says that you're no. meeting God and God's image. This, yeah. this has yes. made no sense yeah. to me. And it's been so hurtful. It's such a hurtful thing. Yes. And, and the weirdest thing about that is this, this belief system was not inherent within church culture until about the 1920s. So you've got pastors perpetuating this idea because there, there's a theologian that I love to quote by Mark A. Knoll. And he said, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is no mind. And so for years, leaders have never questioned the theological practice, perspective, and perpetuation because it's just this reiteration of bad theology and poor theology. And it's almost like playing telephone without questioning the validity. A good book for listeners to read if you want to kind of delve into this more, and I loved it. It's by Tony Jones, and it's called Did God Kill Jesus? Oh. Very, like, controversial title, very, like, red but it goes through about six different, what's called soteriological perspectives. So soteriology is the idea of salvation. So, and all six of them are really valid. So what you're looking at the Orthodox church, a mainline denomination, the Pentecostal church, they all stem from various points of scripture and really not, not one over the other really kind of reacts better. In my opinion, I'm more of a Christist victor, you know, theologian. What does that mean? So that's where the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ was to create good overcoming evil. And so in a sense, then you get into the idea of even what C.S. Lewis believed, where it's almost like, is there such a thing as universalism? So did the idea of good overcoming evil open everything up? What does that mean for other faith groups? You know, so it, it's a really interesting kind of perspective, but I, I, I personally find that theological perspective more in line of how I view Jesus. And I'm like, if I view God as compassionate, loving, you know, benevolent, then I see that. I don't see penal substitution really equaling the character of God, or at least the character of God that I perceive. I think that's been really hard for me. And I've heard again from friends. And like I said, we had a listener write in about the hurtfulness of church trauma and the narrative that you are bad, you are bad, you are bad, mm -hmm. getting looped into identity. And I love this one quote. We, Colleen and I have had a chance to become friends and we talked a little bit a few days back because I was asking her all these questions, but you have said, okay, when it comes to identity, you had said, it's true. You need to be you need to be in search of your own questions. I had grown up with what I, I had actually kind of believed was true, and I had to weigh it for myself now. Can you say more about yeah. that? Yeah. Yes. Finding, like, the weirdest thing that I would say is I, I have never found my identity with concrete answers. I've always found my identity with skepticism. And I think there's that freedom. Sometimes we look at the goal as, okay, we want something concrete, we want something very, you know, static and stoic, but my goal has shifted. So my goal has always been to a place of openness. Am I okay with being uncertain? 
Is, is it okay to kind of like rest here? Am I being teachable? And, and my goal has shifted. And so my identity has changed so much more. And I think for me also too, having, having doubts growing up and my theology really never meshed well with evangelical culture. It was much more in line with progressive Methodists or even Episcopalian. And for the first time, actually like weighing those questions and being like, okay, I can, how do these questions lead to an answer? Or how do these questions lead to a community where I feel like I have more in common with? What kind of questions were you asking yourself? Yeah, well, the idea of original sin. I mean, that never really connected with me. I mean, to me, it's almost like, why should we be punished for something that, no offense, we didn't have any control of doing? My opinion was, if there is no choice, then how can I be responsible for something that wasn't my choice to begin with? It would be like putting someone in jail for someone who didn't do a crime. And so those were things that really bogged my mind. You know, even the idea of being affirming and being welcoming, kind of weighing through that. I had always, I had always kind of looked at that, but it wasn't until I actually did the research that I found that homosexuality was not placed in the Bible until the 1980s. Wow. And actually, when you look back at the language that they used during that time, it had to do with Greek culture. And so Greek culture actually believed that when men had sex with boys, had intercourse, that they'd be physically passing on knowledge. And so what it was is it was called pederastry. So pederastry was what they were talking about during the scriptural time. It was, it was pedophilia. It had nothing to do with consent. It had nothing to do with homosexuality. It had nothing to do with the LGBTQ people at all. And the problem that I've seen is when I started to question, the more that I realized that there were certain dogmas and theologies and doctrines that were pillars within churches that they had taken, they had taken maybe two words or maybe even one verse in scripture and created a whole entire doctrinal system. And instead of actually looking for anything that substantiated it, there was no historical value, there was nothing. But it was something that they could kind of put their stamp of approval to excuse their bias and excuse their discriminatory behavior. How do you deal with all your anger? Because I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm mad. I don't think I could tolerate it. Yeah. One of the main reasons I walked away from faith was a dear mm. friend of mine got ostracized because he came out. And I have some family members yeah. who are transgender, and I find it just inconceivable that that is something to be, to have any attention put towards, particularly when we have so many human rights offenses happening. And don't we have better things yeah. to be doing with our time than arguing what people are doing, arguing who people can love, you know? So mm. I, how do you deal with your anger? <laughs> yeah. The biggest thing that I found is I don't belong in the church. I, one, I would be fired very quickly and I, I couldn't tolerate it. To me, I was, I was in a church internship for about probably three months and it was the worst three months of my life. It was paper shifting. It was just, it, it had so much hierarchy without any form of reason, I couldn't deal with it. And so I know one thing that we've talked about before is the idea of how do I keep going? Yeah. Why? <laughs> one thing that I can say is I, so to me, I, as a female and, you know, as a cisgender, yes, I've, I've come across abuse. Yeah. I've been the only woman that's spoken and I, I haven't gotten paid or I've been excluded or treated vastly differently than my male counterparts, even though I have a higher education yes. than the majority of my male yeah. counterparts, simply because of my gender. And so I can experience a tip of that, but I don't need to worry about going into a homeless shelter and being turned away mm. because I'm within that LGBT community. Yeah. 
I don't need to worry about being dragged by a pickup truck Horrible. from someone who's ignorant and dying because of my sexual orientation. Those are things that I don't need to worry about. And I thank God for it. But I also recognize my privilege because of it. But, and I think with privilege, you've got two choices. With your privilege, you can form a platform or you can become apathetic. Mm. And with my privilege, I've decided, wait a minute, there's a chance to actually create equality here. There's a chance for people that have been voiceless and abused and hated and, and discriminated against for far too long that they deserve to not only stand behind me, but stand next to me. And how can I actually raise the bar, raise the standard? And even if I put up with some of the abuse, it's nothing to compared to what they, they do. So I always say, it's the scars of people that actually perpetuate my purpose and perpetuate my mission. And every time that I, I face a struggle or I, you know, face a technical difficulty, I turn back and I'm like, Lord, help me to remember the faces. Help me to see the stories of people who have confided in me. I got a wonderful letter when, when I first actually said, okay, loud is going to be affirming. We're going to state that out there. And I honestly didn't even consult with my board. This was something that I just did. And I mean, they all knew kind of like where I stood and they all knew that we were welcoming and whatnot, but I wanted to make it very, very out there. And there was a lot of hate mail that week, but I had the most beautiful note from a mom. And I'm like, I didn't know her from anybody. And she contacted me and she goes, I'm trying to actually deconstruct 25 years of what I've been taught. And she goes, I'm learning to love my daughter and I'm learning to love my daughter's girlfriend. And she's like, and you're helping me with this process. And so just that realization of, wait a minute, like I, I'm part of someone else's story. And I think every single person has a voice that matters. And every single one of us is writing upon someone else's story. But the question is, what are we willing to write? Like, what's the legacy that we're leaving? Wow. <laughs> what does faith mean to you now? I think faith is raw to me now. I would even say, even like with my prayer life, I've always been a very vocal person. And so I don't, you know, I can't sit there and be reverent. I think one of the biggest things that has changed is I haven't said amen at the end of my prayers. I said, God, that's where I'm at. And I think there's this beautiful sense of peace by saying, okay, this is where I'm at. You know, it's like, I want to be seen in all of, all of who I am. It's like my doubts, my frustration, my joy, and just my, my prayer life is very vivid. I raise my fists, I curse, I yell. I, you know, I'm very open and honest with my, with my personal perspective of God. And there's such, there's such more liberation that I felt of going to God, not so much with answers, but seeing God as part of my journey. And seeing God as part of my faith journey and going back and forth of, okay, how, how am I being inspired today? How am I being really frustrated today? And not, I think, trying to, I think, I think for so long also too, within the Christian community, there's this idea of Christian maturity. And it has this almost tier situation of, you know, you read your Bible, you do the devotions. It, it's like this pyramid scheme. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've, never, I've never connected with that. To me, I would die if I had to read my Bible for two hours every morning. It's just not how I get fed. You are speaking my language, Dr. Colleen. Yes. If, if I can get fed in my faith from experiencing joy of listening to old school Will Smith do Men in Black. Thank you. Then 
Thank you. I'm going to listen to that <laughs> and not her song. So it's just, it, it's, it's revising my perspective of what faith is and realizing that it's not so static. One of the quotes that you said earlier, and this makes me think of something else that you had said on another conversation is mm -hmm. it's not doing me any favors to not live in the truth. And we had joked about what it means to be an expat when it comes to faith yeah. in general, whatever faith you are. I'm speaking, of course, to Christianity. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. Yeah. And we, we talked about where it's almost like that idea of, you know, recovering yeah. alcoholic, recovering ex evangelical. <laughs> right. And it is, there's a lot of things that I've had to deconstruct. Yeah. What does that look like for you, deconstructing? I think there's, there's freedom, as I've said, but there is also a sense of sorrow. Mm. Because the one thing that I would say, and I'm sure you can kind of relate to this, is when you've grown up within the church, it's not a community that you attend. It's, it's a part of your identity that becomes intertwined within you. And I think the problem is it's almost like there's people that you miss. There's family members that will no longer talk to you. They'll deem you a heretic. They'll deem you as a walking contradiction to their perspective of Christianity and the gospel. And there's a thicker skin, but there's also a sense of grief because you are missing. There's a death in a sense of the old you. But I think until you have that death, you need to acknowledge that. You need to grieve. You need to say that, yes, there is this death. I can't just move on right away. I need to actually acknowledge it. I need to acknowledge what I've lost from it. And then when you're in that place of waiting, figure out, okay, how am I going to rebuild myself? It's almost like a Lego set. Like imagine you're creating something. And, but instead of actually creating this tower, you want to create this bridge instead. Well, in order to create that bridge, you have to actually knock down the tower that you created. And I think there's a part of me that had to knock down a tower, so to speak, of religiosity and faith and different perspectives that I had accepted. Not that I had believed, but I had accepted. And then just knock it down and then start from scratch. So you start with a blueprint, you move forward, and you acknowledge the fact that you're, you're a babe in the faith again. And there's that sense of embracing your wonder, reading books, figuring out who are you going to be. And it's not so much being the person that people hoped you were going to be, but it's being who you really are. And there's this wonderful idea of, of learning about yourself to the point of, of walking in the full identity and, and wholeness of who you are. And there's no one that's writing your script for you. I I love that one quote that I just took so many quotes from you from previous interviews. One that you said was, I was always persecuted more because I asked questions and I didn't just go with the status quo. And I think that this is very, very true. Just having these last 40 minutes chatting with you about, I can really tell. And I think it's so refreshing. I'm so grateful that you're putting your voice out there. I think we're so lucky to have this perspective how have you maintained your voice in the sea of getting persecuted, getting hate mail, not having the community? You talk a little bit about not having the community for a while and even healing from grief without community. So I'm just curious, how have you maintained your sanity, I guess, is really the question. Yeah, no, uh, great question. And I think and I think for the longest time, and I, and I touched a little bit on that grief there, it was, it was, it was grieving. Yeah. It was very hard because you're looking at things that are familiar. And in a sense, it's, it's almost like, as I said, it's like that domestic abuse relationship. Sometimes you stay mm -hmm. 
because it's familiar. It doesn't take risk. You don't have to, to step away. And I think once I did, there was a lot of, of questioning. Did I do the right thing? Was I intolerant? Did I not give enough grace? And there was this idea of victim shaming. Well, maybe it was my fault. Maybe I was too aggressive. Maybe I was too assertive. You know, maybe I didn't, you know, offer people enough mercy, so to speak. And I think growing up in the church, especially as a female, we're taught to be apple pie and all Americana and make everybody feel good. And we're taught that anger is a problem. There was a really good TED talk that I had heard from the, the creator of, of Mixedish, Diana Ross's daughter, and her name is, is eluding me, but she gave a really good talk on the idea of embracing anger. And that was one of the biggest things for me, where it's almost like I, I went from, from crying, I went from grieving, but I also went to anger and, and kind of just embraced that time of realizing that I could have righteous anger, I could have righteous indignation. And it gave me that freedom to really rise up as a leader to not really settle to be a follower, but to rise up as that leader. But it was difficult. It was a really difficult road. I'd say that I'm, I'm still on that journey. But one thing that's really helped is, I mean, you, like connecting with people, I think, who have become ex-evangelicals or, you know, as you say, where it's like that, that recovering Christianity. And realizing that you're not alone, that you're not crazy, connecting with people who are thinking the same way. But I think also, too, giving myself grace for people that aren't where I'm at now. And I look at faith as almost evolutionary and I've had to work on it to really have self-control because I'm like, wait a minute, I was ignorant to this. I was arrogant to this. I was emphatic in my belief system when I was 14 years old, uh, when I was 25. That is definitely some stuff I've been thinking back over my journey in in faith in the church. And I am just to anyone listening out there right now, I apologize. For my dogmatism, just my staunchness, I, it's embarrassing. I'm embarrassed and I'm ashamed. Yeah, yeah. But it's, and I, I totally agree. I think like, you know, I look back at some of the things that I've done. I'm like, oh, holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, but, but there's a sense of if you and I, if we can give ourselves grace, then how do we translate grace for others who are on that same journey who might not have arrived yet? And I think leading loud has been hard. It's been frustrating because not every single person is on that same progressive wavelength as myself. Can you say a little bit more about what loud is? Yeah. So loud is, it's changing and shifting quite a bit, which is great, but loud really is a space for skeptics, but it's built on the structures of inclusion, diversity, and equality. And so what we've done in the past is we've done mental health workshops, summits, And we've done purpose workshops as well as doing, you know, racial reconciliation. And we've tried to create a space where people aren't welcomed with strings attached, you know, for the sake of conversion, but they're just welcomed. Where it's like, regardless of your faith, regardless of your experience, we truly just want to create a place that's welcoming and a place where doubt and skepticism and questions are are the normative within the community. You walk the walk and you talk the talk, Colleen. You are one hell of a woman. I am honored to (laughs) know you. And I'm more than that. I'm very honored and humbled to be a friend and watch your journey. I am in awe. And you're one of the women that I would think, okay, I might give this thing a shot again. Thank you so much for your wisdom. You are a joy. And thank you so much for your honesty and your authenticity. We're all there. You know, we're all just on this journey together. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to give myself grace with that. 
But the, my perfectionism <laughs> seeps into faith. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Well, I, I even think, you know, for me, I, I'm still struggling with the fact that I haven't quite reconstructed yet. Mm, yeah. Putting your faith back together. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's like I, I've started on that yellow brick road and I'm like, all right, where, you know, Toto, where's Kansas? <laughs> you you want to get to the end so that you can sort of reach the destination. But I've kind of grown accustomed to, wait a minute, maybe, maybe the end is the journey. Wow. Wow. Thank you. I adore you. You too. <laughs> I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.algofirst.com. We'll see you next time. Thank you.